Welcome to another episode of Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is Hannah, and I am the Morris B. Abram Fellow at UN Watch in Geneva, Switzerland. On this podcast episode, we are discussing UN Watch's work in combating anti-Israel bias at the UN. To join me in discussing our work, we have with us UN Watch Executive Director Hillel Neuer. The questions you will hear on this episode were originally submitted by our followers as part of our 2021 fundraising campaign. One common question that people have when it comes to anti-Israel bigotry at the UN is that they want to know why does this happen at the UN and why do you call it anti-Israel bigotry rather than anti-Semitism? I identify five different factors. Let me share them with you. One is oil. Historically, the Arab world had oil and they told countries in Africa and elsewhere, if you don't go along with our resolutions against Israel introduced by the Arab and Islamic states, we will cut you off. And so the oil weapon remains very powerful. Second, sovereign wealth funds. The Arab states like Qatar would say, you want us to invest billions of dollars in your country. If you don't vote for our resolutions, you don't get the money. So oil, money, vote trading. You know, a big part of the UN works by vote trading. What does that mean? It means that you vote for me, I vote for you. The UN is a political body and a very cynical political body at that, very removed from any sort of accountability. And so you have 56 Islamic states and you have one Jewish state. And the 56 Islamic states say, they go to countries in Africa, in South America, around the world, and they say, if you vote for our resolutions on Israel, we'll vote for you. So you might be China, which may not necessarily have hostility to Jews or Israel, but they want the votes and they want to make sure that the Islamic countries will never condemn them at the UN for what they do to Muslims. China has one million Muslims in camps in Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, and there's never been a single resolution, commission of inquiry, special session against China for how it persecutes, subjugates, and puts a million Muslims in concentration camps because the Muslim countries make a deal, you vote for us on Israel, we leave you alone. So vote trading, very significant. Finally, I'll mention terrorism. There is a fear of terrorism. Historically, if you're one of the small minority of countries who vote with Israel, you could suddenly find terrorism within your borders and countries are afraid. So if you add these together, the influence of oil, sovereign wealth funds, vote trading, fear of terrorism, and finally, I would say, these are all rational factors. I would also mention anti-Semitism. You know, in the Middle Ages, in Europe, when there was the Black Plague, they said the Jews poisoned the wells. The Jews were the scapegoat for the world and they persecuted and killed and burned Jews throughout the Middle Ages for things like that. In the modern times, the Jews remain a scapegoat. It's just in their modern form, so it's the Jewish state. And if there's human rights violations in the world, if there's war in the world, once again, it's the Jews at fault. And you see that time and time again, and that Israel is effectively a modern manifestation of this form of scapegoating. Effectively, Israel has become the Jew among the nations. So I think that anti-Semitism, why don't you call it anti-Semitism? I do think there are several factors. There are realpolitik. Israel is small. It doesn't have huge amounts of oil and money and votes. So I think realpolitik plays a main factor, but definitely hostility, historic hostility towards Jews clearly plays a factor at the UN. So speaking of anti-Semitism, does the anti-Semitism that we see at the UN today mostly originate from Soviet propaganda? For sure. In 1975, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Zionism is Racism Resolution. And this was a shameful resolution. 
which basically demonized the very idea of the state of Israel, and no other country was demonized in that way. The very idea of Jewish national liberation, Jewish self-determination, was demonized as racist. This came from the Soviets. This began with the Soviets in Soviet Union. So this was a form of Soviet propaganda, and it became embraced by the United Nations. So I would say, indeed, much of what we see at the UN, and I would say in certain sectors of the radical left, of Zionism as racism, did get influenced by deliberate Soviet propaganda. So there is definitely those historical origins. Is there data to suggest that Israel isn't the human rights abuser that the UN suggests it to be? Yes, there is. There is data. There's a group called Freedom House. Freedom House is an organization that does freedom in the world, does a survey around the world of countries. They rate countries as free, partly free, not free. And if you look in the past several decades, Israel is rated free and they explain their data and why that is the case. So you'll see, for example, that Israel has an elected parliament. If you don't like the government, people didn't want Netanyahu, they elected another coalition, they kicked him out. You can change governments in Israel, and indeed they fall all the time. There's an elected democracy. There is a judiciary. I actually clerked on the Supreme Court of Israel, a case where thousands of petitions are brought every year, where an independent judiciary can review decisions made by the government. There is a vigorous free press, you might say hyper-vigorous. So the key institutions of democracy are definitely there in Israel. No democracy is perfect. Israel is not perfect, but this is one of them. So I, I do think that Freedom House is a good place to look. You see countries compared and Israel is rated free. But I think anyone just studies democracy in Israel will see that whatever issues there are, it is a vibrant liberal democracy. Do you think that the UN has, in a way, rewritten history, especially with Resolution 2334? Yes, I do think that the UN often rewrites history, and I've seen it in small ways and large ways. Small ways, I remember the UN did a press release when the Human Rights Council was created in June 2006, but then a year later they created the rules of the Human Rights Council in June 2007, and I was there, and there was a deadline that they had to do certain things by midnight deadline, and they missed the midnight deadline, but the press release the next day pretended that everything was done before midnight, so they literally rewrote history moments after it happened and everyone saw it and the Canadian government objected to it. So there's little ways that history is rewritten and there's large ways. You mentioned Resolution 2334 for people who don't know. This was the final days of 2016 under the Obama administration. Uh, Obama was angry at Netanyahu for several reasons and Obama told Netanyahu, I can no longer protect you at the UN. And indeed, Obama allowed, and some say, and there's evidence to believe that the Obama administration encouraged the introduction of this resolution, which actually Egypt introduced, then it, Egypt withdrew it under pressure from the incoming Trump administration. But then I think it was New Zealand and Senegal and I think Indonesia, which introduced the resolution the next day. America abstained, but it seems that America also wanted the resolution to come. This resolution, 2334, says that Jerusalem, including the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, including the most historic sacred Jewish places, which include the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, that these are all occupied Palestinian territory. And that is rewriting history. These areas were never part of any Palestinian sovereignty. It was under Jewish sovereignty 2,000 years ago, and then under the Romans and Islamic control and the Crusaders and the Mamluks, and you can go on and on. There never was a Palestinian sovereignty there. The last one before Israel was Jordan. Only two countries in the world recognized it. So to say that the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem is Palestinian territory is definitely rewriting history. Is there any way to ignore or replace the UN to stop it from being controlled by tyrannies? 
my opinion on this is that realistically, whether you like it or not, you can't get rid of the United Nations. It's there. It is there. And we see that countries, even the most skeptical countries, like at times a Republican administration, don't try to get rid of the UN. It's there to stay. Can you get an alliance of democracies? It was tried. In the 1990s, Madeleine Albright created something called the Community of Democracies. A number of countries joining this community of democracies, but it never became a significant, substantial political body. It met once every two years. No one was willing to really replace the UN. The EU has their own club of democracies. They like the UN. They have good treatment there. It's not realistic at all to imagine that the UN will be replaced. Does it mean you can, can you not do things outside the UN? No, of course you can. NATO can act when it wants to, and it has. The European Union, which is a club of democracies, can act, and it has. The G7 can act, and, you know, ad hoc. The US, Canada, and other democracies can act in their own capacity at the UN to you know, deliver statements and all that sort of thing. And even if you'd get rid of the UN, you wouldn't solve the problems. Other universal bodies, if it's the Red Cross Federation, even FIFA, the World Football Organization, you see them singling out Israel. So whenever you get a world body, you do get the singling out of Israel. Hillel, you're known for these mic drop moments. So why do your consistent mic drop moments not make other delegates wake up to the reality of what's happening at the UN? Despite our best efforts, the United Nations is a very cynical place. Governments act according to their interests, their perceived interests, and you can make the best arguments. Most of the UN delegates, their hearts are made of stone, they're acting under orders, and you could convince the person next to you, but a political deal has been struck. I already explained to you the pressure of the oil sovereign wealth funds votes to get the 56 Islamic votes means that countries are not likely to change their vote, even with my best mic drop moments. And if you haven't seen, we just have a video that came out in our campaign page. You can look for our 2021 campaign page. It's in our various posts and links on our platforms. And you'll see the video, which has some of our, our greatest moments. But sadly, the UN remains a very cynical place. Is there a point in arguing with someone who wholeheartedly believes that Israel is evil? Beyond the Israel issue, I believe if you're arguing with someone whose mind is totally convinced and who's not interested in learning if they made a mistake and, and really having a discussion, it's not worth it. I'm involved in debate and argument all the time. I will never debate someone who I think their mind is entirely made up unless it's a public thing where actually you, know, you have to convince a larger audience on TV or on Twitter or something. But if you're in a conversation with someone who really is not interested, then I think you do a cost-benefit analysis and you shouldn't waste your time. But you should definitely try to convince people, and there are many people, whose minds can be changed with the facts. Has anyone ever approached you and said that their mind has changed because of your advocacy? Well, I, I don't know if, it, if it's really things happen like that, but certainly people over the years have said that our work an education of public opinion is very significant. And I will get private moments diplomatically where diplomats will come up to me privately and say that they like to watch my speeches and they'll whisper to me they don't want to be seen sometimes next to me because I'm kind of toxic at the UN. I even have UN officials sometimes coming to me that whenever I speak, they listen. So we know people are listening and we are trying to convince those whose minds are not yet made up, but not everyone will admit to having their minds changed. Another common question that a lot of people want to know the answer to is about public relations. How did the Palestinians win on the PR front, and why is Israel still sleeping on it? Look, I will agree that Israelis and Israel as a government are not always very good at PR. 
And that's a fact. Israelis like to be blunt and being diplomatic and thinking about PR is not really part of their culture. But if you think that Israel's negative image around the world is the result of something that Israel did or didn't do, or the result of some terrific feat of superb communications by the Palestinian side and its supporters, I think you're terribly wrong. I think you have to be very honest. And the fact is there is a market. There is a market worldwide for feeling moral outrage over the sins of the Jews. And that has been a market that's existed for at least 2,000 years, certainly in societies that come from Christian and Islamic civilization, religions that come from Judaism, and as the psychologists would say, still have their issues. Okay, I think if you go in India, where there's Hindus, or in China and other countries, you do not see the same kind of bias that you will see in certain Western and Middle Eastern countries. There is a market for something that will dwell on the sins of the Jews. That is why there is this intense focus and bias against Israel. It's not because of something that Israel did or didn't do. And Yasser Arafat, who was the head of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization for many years, was a PR nightmare. He was not slick and he was not a great speaker, but he was invited everywhere because people liked the product he was selling, which was somehow to make the Jews look bad. And sadly, that still seems to be very popular. So I think it's a big mistake to excuse anti-Semitism by saying it's Israel's fault. I know many people, where I live in Switzerland, I know people will say, oh, you know, there's terrible things in the newspaper against Israel, and we, the Jews, are feeling the brunt of it, and it's because Israel does poor PR. That is an easy scapegoat, and it's not really addressing the real problem, which is, to be honest, it's anti-Semitism. So issues with the concept of PR aside, how can we get better public relations to show the world that Israel wants peace? Just keep telling the truth. That's the best thing you can do. Get the facts. You can show how Israel has made peace with every Arab counterpart that came forward, whether it's Egypt with Anwar Sadat, Jordan with King Hussein, whether it's recently the normalizing relations with the Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco, uh, Israel going to the Oslo peace accords with Yasser Arafat. Israel has always responded when the Arab side has been willing for peace. They tried negotiations with Syria. They tried with Lebanon. There's still some negotiations on some border disputes happening there. So just share the facts. That's the best thing you can do to get the truth out. How do we fight these attempts to rebrand Jew hatred as a form of social justice? Well, you know, that is hard work. Today, social justice is the popular trend and buzzword and a movement that many people believe in. But why would, for example, someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who was head of the Socialist the Labour Party for a number of years recently, why would he say that Hamas is his friend? Why would he march in, in anti-war rallies with Hamas friends? It's not rational. People on the left who believe in gay rights and women's rights and equality, the last people they should be marching with are Hamas people. So those kinds of things are absolutely not rational. They are not social justice. Right? It is not rational that AOC, who believes in social justice, or Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch, that they should be effectively siding with Hamas. That is absurd. Hamas is misogynistic. It is homophobic. It is anti-Semitic. It is racist. It is a massive human rights abuser. And we just need to remind people in the social justice movement of the facts. If they really believe in social justice and progressive causes, the last group they would want to be with is either Hamas or, frankly, the Palestinian Authority, which crushes their own people. You could just ask the family of Nizar Banat to read more about him and what they did to him when he criticized Abbas. The signing of the Abraham Accords in 2020 was a milestone moment. 
Since then, have you seen any positive change from the Gulf countries at the UN? And specifically, have they had an effect on anti-Israel sentiment at the UN? The answer is some, okay? The countries from the Abraham Accords, Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco are still voting against Israel at the UN, but guess what? So do well over 100 other countries. It's wrong, it shouldn't happen, but it's unlikely to expect that the Emirates is going to be more pro-Israel than countries like Singapore or countries in South America that don't have historic you know, enmity of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Most countries vote against Israel. It's wrong, but they do. So it's unlikely to expect that these new countries joining the Abraham Accords are going to change their votes at the General Assembly. But Bahrain last year abstained on a vote against Israel. They were absent on a vote on Israel. So I think they were absent on purpose. So that was an interesting thing. And there have been some joint statements by Israel and the countries mentioned before, the Emirates of Bahrain and Morocco. There was one at the Human Rights Council where they did a joint statement together. So certainly the atmospherics, even in the UN, certainly in the region, the relations between Israel, the Emirates, and Bahrain and Morocco are wonderful and are incredible. But even at the UN, which is often the worst, most cynical place, there is some atmospherics that are improving, some joint things together, but it's slight and not enormous. So I wouldn't expect to see huge changes in UN voting. Is a less anti-Israel future possible, or is it just a never-ending fight? No, it's not a never-ending fight. We hope that uh, countries can change their votes. The UK recently changed their votes. We had 38 countries that refused to go to the Durban Four Conference, a part of a historic anti-Semitic process that took place in September of this year. 38 countries didn't go. We played a key role in getting countries not to go. So we do believe you can fight anti-Israel bias, but obviously hatred against Jews has been enduring and enduring hatred for millennia. So it is not a simple battle. Do you get hate comments? And if yes, how often? We get all kinds of hate comments, but look, at the UN, I get vitriolic condemnations from the world's worst regimes, Syria and Libya and Iran and China and Russia and Cuba and Venezuela say the worst things about me and UN Watch. And to be honest, often it's a badge of honor. It's not nice to be hated, but we try not to let it influence our work. Do you have any books that you recommend to study the history of Israel without bias? That is a great question. I'm going to share with you just a few books that I think are terrific that deal with Israel. An amazing book about the foundation of Israel and its precedents is called Promise and Fulfillment, Palestine, 1917 to 1949 by Arthur Kessler. An amazing book, brilliant book about the British mandate and the foundation of Israel, 1917 to 1949. A second book. If you're interested in philosophy and Judaism and big picture ideas, you should read an amazing book called A People That Dwells Alone. It's one of my favorite books, Speeches and Writings of Yaakov Herzog, uh, who was Israel's ambassador to Canada and the head of uh, the prime minister's office, a brilliant person who was a great scholar of Jewish learning as well as an incredible diplomat, if you want to understand Israel in its historic and highest sense. Three other books quickly, Six Days of War by Michael Oren, a great book on the history of the Six-Day War. Another book, The Resurgence of Anti-Semitism, Jews, Israel, and Liberal Opinion by Bernard Harrison. He's a logic professor in England. I went to meet him because I loved his book that much. Read it. It's written about 2003, The Resurgence of Anti-Semitism. It's a brilliant book. Finally, someone asked about the UN, books about the UN. I suggest a book by Patrick Moynihan. It's called A Dangerous Place. He was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in 1975 when they adopted the Zionism is Racism resolution. He gave the most brilliant speech in the history of the United Nations, and he has a brilliant memoir called A Dangerous Place. Read it. 
Finally, there's a book about that event called Moynihan's Moment by my friend, Professor Gil Choi, also a brilliant book on the same theme. Have you ever considered writing a book yourself? Look, I do want to write at least one book, and the issue of Israel at the UN will be a part of it, hopefully. If I can find the time, maybe get a sabbatical to find the time to write the book. But I would like to understand more profoundly how human rights has been turned upside down at the United Nations, a movement founded by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1946. The most eminent philosophers now have some of the worst scoundrels on the Human Rights Council, people like Ken Roth, the head of Human Rights Watch, who sides with Hamas and who's obsessed with demonizing Israel. How did the human rights movement get so corrupted? These are some of the things that I want to look at. Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. See you next time.